0: You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast and for the next 60 minutes we're going to be having a Merry Christmas so that you don't have to.
1: Hello, my name is Toby Hado, and I'm sure you know my work of playing second Scarus Robert in an episode of Crime Watch once and Man from Antonio in the nineteen eighty nine Ludlow Festival production of the Merchant of Venice. I do stuff to do with Doctor Who occasionally as well
0: <laughs> Fair enough, Toby. I should have I should have expected that, shouldn't I? Okay, Toby, would you like to tell the listeners out of all fifty years of Doctor Who, what is your special Doctor Who moment?
1: Well, it's an obvious one in a way, and a not obvious one in a way, because it's—I uh, mean, I love Doctor Who, but I—I I think often what interested me when I was reading the books and stuff was was the new people the Doctor and the companion met. I was almost less interested in in the the Doctor and the companion, which the show is sort of much more about now. But I quite like the fact that he always took us to new places, and uh, so my scene contains neither the Doctor nor a companion, um, but in a way, it's a bit of a cliche. Uh, because it is a scene that has been fated, um before now, but it's the lovely scene, it's two scenes actually, between, um Binro the Heretic and Unstoff, where a flea-ridden old man with no teeth, uh, cause Timothy Bateson, bless him, took his false teeth out, <laughs> um, uh, and, and, you know, a, a con man, albeit a benevolent one with an honest face, um, meet, and, one tells the other that the thing he's been um, pilloried for his entire life and the thing that means he's a uh, that has caused him to be a, a flea ridden old man lying in the slums towards the end of his life uh, and it is implied by the um the shrieve that uh, that finds him that you know you're nearly dead, nobody's gonna miss you but that actually he was right, and it's so. Subtly and beautifully and kindly done, Um and, and, you know, Binro is, is a sort of comedic character, you know, he, he's a sort of hobbly old man and, 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 Bateson's got this funny, you know, diction that's got, but, but even though he's a sort of comic character, um and, and a larger than life character, you know, it's none, you know, it's not a naturalistic piece, Ragos Operation, although there is humanity beneath that, and that's, that's what I actually like about slightly larger than my performances is is that I think you get a a, a better look at the inner workings of a of a person. You do with more naturalistic stuff. Naturalistic stuff, if performance doesn't speak to me quite so much, which is why I like, um, you know, the, yes, the, the the sort of the way of making television as we did in the old days, which was the, the, where the acting style was slightly more heightened. I don't think it's less realistic or, or believable or truthful just because it is a, because performance is slightly heightened. But actually, if you want ultra realism um go and visit your next door neighbor um, <laughs> I, I, you know I quite like that actors can show us show us a a, a a more profound truth in a way and um and it's a beautiful scene and it's really nicely acted and um and it's nicely written and it's a sign of uh, you know how how good Robert Holmes was yeah um, yeah and I mean it's another reason for choosing it is because Robert Holmes wasn't any you know was a good writer of of dialogue and plot and all those sorts of things. It's his world building that I so admire away. Little throwaway lines, um, you know, paint pictures that the, you know, the, the viewer is so inclined can, can extrapolate from if they want to. And if, if they don't, it's just a little bit of texture that, that adds to the verisimilitude. Everything from, you know, you, uh, um, uh, saying, I don't pick chalk or me. And you go, I don't know what that is, but you can, you, you <laughs> get it sort of, you know, you know, it's, it must be some sort of, um you know, chain gang manual labor that prisoners do, you know, and, and Findecker's experiments are mentioned as taking scientific progress off a technological cul-de-sac in the towns of Wang Chiang and, and all of that. And, and the doctors don't stop to explain what those are as you wouldn't do in real life. You know, it's a far cry from, um uh, Mick Ross in in Timelash who has a terrible line saying, um, not only is something something, but also our former allies, the bandrills. Uh, mm. You would never say to somebody, uh, we're, we're at war with, we're nearly at war with our former allies, the bandrills. You know, but it just, it just fills the audience in, whilst two people tell each other what they already know. Um, and Holmes was so good at, at doing that. But at the, at the bottom of it, it's two sort of relatively minor figures in Doctor Who history, um, exchanging in an in absolutely beautiful moment. Um And I, you know, I, yeah, I love it. It's lovely. It makes me cry. <laughs> well, Toby,
0: thank you for that. That's brilliant. Um, one more question before you go. Yeah. Uh, if Santa Claus could bring you this year a Terence Dicks pen novelisation of any new series story,
1: which one would
0: you like him to bring?
1: A Terence Dicks novelisation of any new series story. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Um well it would have to be one that has a prologue that isn't in the book because Terrence Dicks was always mm. one of those when in the early the little Malcolm Hope was even better. Um a Terrence Dicks novelization of a new series adventure. Uh mm, I would say I'd be interested to see what he did with Rise of the Cybermen and the Age of Steel, because it's got a, a bit of, uh, bit of old school about it, but I think it's got enough in it that he could, he could extrapolate and give backstories to the rebels and things like that. And I think he could, I think he could do a bit more with it, because it wasn't, it wasn't, it was one of the less satisfying of the new series of adventures. And I always think that Terrence Dix is very good at, at, at him, at rounding off yeah. the square, if you like, of the stories that don't quite gel. So, yeah, Rise of the Cybermen, Age of Steel, please.
0: And also, it's one of those adventures where it kind of moves off into all sorts of different areas that might actually work quite well in, in prose form, I think.
1: Absolutely. And also, because Terrence Dix didn't get many opportunities to write the Cybermen when he was writing Target novels. Absolutely, yeah. Davis um, did most of them. I mean, he did Revenge of the Cybermen, didn't he? And uh, 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 um, Terence. Did, Ter- did Terrence write the novel of Revenge of the Cybermen? Yes, he did.
0: oh uh, yes, yes, that'd be the yes, only one did. I think.
1: But he didn't do any. Yeah, he didn't do any of the others.
0: Oh, hang on, I've got it right next to me on the shelf, and it Ian says. Martin. Yes, it does. It says Terran Sticks on the side.
1: Yeah, and Ian Martin did Invasion, and mm. uh, Eric Sayer did Attack, and Jerry Davis did all the other ones.
0: Yeah. Oh well, we definitely need oh, Terran Sticks to do a new it, Cyberman one then.
1: We're in space as well.
0: Oh, of course he did, yeah. But nobody's got that, so it doesn't count.
1: Oh, I don't think I've got. I don't think I've got that.
0: Oh, really? I think no. that's one of the more expensive ones on eBay now as well.
1: Yeah, it fell through the cracks a bit that one.
0: Yeah, and I think it came right towards the end, and they just did only a sh- kind of short print run on some of those later ones as well. Yeah. Oh, well, if I can possibly find you one on eBay for less than a fiver, I'll definitely send it to you for Christmas, Oh, which of course is not going to happen, so I can happily make that promise in full knowledge that I'll never have to live up to it.
1: Excellent.
2: (laughs) Toby, thank you so much.
1: My very great pleasure.
2: Hello, I'm Kyle Anderson, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Doctor Who, the Writer's Room, a monthly podcast that looks at the writers of Doctor Who. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Now Kyle, with only fifty years' worth of stuff to choose from, would you like to tell our listeners what your special Doctor Who moment is?
2: Well, I mean that is a very difficult thing that you've posed to me, Jr. Um, <laughs> uh, being that it's fifty years, but um, I think I I'm, I went back to the beginning of my love for the show, which was sort of non you know unceremonious. Um, Uh, I, I grew up a little bit with it, but I had completely lost touch with it for many, many years. And then in 2009, um, uh, I was at Comic-Con and looking for something to do one evening and there was a panel with Russell T Davies and David Tennant and John Barrowman. And so I just went in and people were going nuts about it. And I was like, I don't know why they're so excited. I've never, I mean, I've never watched either of these shows. Um, and then, but that kind of got the germ in my head, um, thinking and then, some random day, pardon me, before I uh, went to work one day, I was looking for something to watch, and BBC America On Demand had one episode of Doctor Who, and it was Father's Day from Series 1, and so How I watched it. How bizarre is that? I know, strange, <laughs> very strange. Um, so they must have been doing a replay of, of the Eccleston stuff, because this was, like I said, 2009, mm. um, and and so I just was like, all right, I mean, I'll give it a watch. And then um, I was just kind of blown away by it. Uh, I mean, it, it definitely looked like a lot of the British drama that I've seen, you know, as far as the, the quality of the, the tape, um, but it it was it just the storytelling was so interesting, and, and the, I didn't know who Rose was at that point, I didn't, you know, I b- barely remembered who the doctor was from my youth, um, and it was just kind of, he was so alien in that story and that and and yet the the story itself was so human and that really kind of spoke to me because you know who wouldn't right. if, yeah. if their their father died at such a young age or when they, when she was such a young person why wouldn't you want to go back and see that and then try to stop it and all this stuff that you know a kid would do a you know a person who doesn't quite understand time travel and then the doctor basically being like well all right you guys this is your fault I'm not doing anything and then there's that moment that which I think is what got me to keep watching which is when he he's talking to the some of some of the other patrons of the church mm. and they're just talking about their life or whatever and he he says all right I will save you and I was just like wow that is such a weird a weird stance to take and I I I you know I it really made me want to go and watch more but then of course at that point I was like oh I'll only watch the eccleston stuff I'm not going to get that involved and that was just a fool's errand because of course <laughs> Within a year, I'm watching Hartnell and Troughton and stuff. And, and, and just... actually,
0: you kind of caught it quite well, because by that point, the new series was also established enough that you had quite a substantial chunk of new series to catch up on as well.
2: Absolutely, yeah. On uh, It was the first series, first, second, and third series were all on Netflix at that point. So after I watched Father's Day, I was like, well, you know, let's let's see what the, the beginning is like. And so I could just watch, and I, when I finished Parting of the Ways, I was like, all right, I'm done. And then, like, literally an hour later, I was like, well, let's see what this David Tennant fell is like, <laughs> and um, and then I just watched that, and then series four wasn't on Netflix yet, so I purchased it on iTunes. Uh, that's how much I wanted to watch the next series, and so wow, I I caught up to the point where I could watch the end of time at, at home. I mean, it was a day late in the United States, but um, I was able to watch it more relatively live, and so and I was like, wow, I did I did pretty well watching four full <laughs> series of television. Yeah, not bad. In a few months, yeah.
0: I you know, I almost sometimes wish that I could, you know, catch new Doctor Who like that myself because, you know, having to wait a week for the next episode can be so agonizing
2: and yet you just sort of press next and there you were. I know, it makes it so easy. It doesn't it doesn't make you wait at all and, and sometimes that's a detriment, but like I ju I, I just plowed through those series so fast. And mm. And it just got me going, and then that's when I started watching the old stuff too, and it was just it it all it cascaded very quickly. But so your special Doctor Who moment then would be Father's Day. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's it's still one of my favorite episodes. Um, it's a it, great episode, absolutely. And it's it's relatively simple, but it's you know it's got everything that I like, which is time. Excuse me, time looping, mm. and you know, being implications of time travel, which I think is really. Uh, kind of underused on the show but um and it's
0: kind of an atypical episode as well but at the same time that it's quite a nice introduction because it kind of gently gets you in without all the sort of big drama monsters <clears throat> it kind of eases you in without being too distancing if you mm-hmm. know what i mean
2: definitely like I said, I didn't really know what was going on, but I was still like, oh, I'm, I'm into this. Like, I, I, know, yeah. I know who, it, you know, I can, I can gather who everybody is.
0: Right, Kyle, before you go then, seeing mm-hmm. as it's Christmas, I've got one more question for you. And it will be, if Santa Claus could bring you uh, a fully animated missing story of any episode length,
2: mm. which story would you like it to be? Mmm, Fully animated. I think I would go with uh maybe Evil of the Daleks. That one I've always loved ever since I listened to and I'm not a big fan of listening to the the audios um mm. if I can really help it. But that one like had me engaged the entire time. I know I know like conventional wisdom is that Power of the Daleks is better maybe, but uh, Evil of the Daleks was like absolutely one of my favorite ones. So I I'd, I'd love to get that one in a, in a animated DVD.
0: OK, well, I'll see if I can get in touch with him what? and make that happen for you. Oh, my God. <laughs> you are Santa Claus. <laughs> Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you, J.R. This is Lee wishing you a Merry
3: Christmas. Hi, I'm Matthew Jacobs. I wrote the uh, Paul McGann TV movie that was broadcast in 1996. Hello, Matt. And
0: for our listeners, would you like to tell them what is your special Doctor Who moment
3: well the the doctor who moments that spring to mind are primarily Doctor Who moments that happened when I was a child because those are the ones that normally stick with you um and for me um actually the first doctor Who moment that really sticks in my mind and i don't know how much of this is a is a uh a memory myth, as it were, um, something that, some, because I was very young and every Saturday, we lived in Harlow, um, every Saturday um, my mum would take uh, myself and my brother off to um, the store to do the shopping for the week and then we'd come back, it was almost like a ritual, we'd watch the... uh what was it the pools being yeah. announced um uh, and we'd all get excited to to watch the uh to watch the show and this is a literal behind the sofa moment um and with the dialects came on, and I was frightened you know and and we we went behind the sofa. And the Daleks were going, exterminate, exterminate. And we had a small, very crappy TV, and smoke started coming out of the TV. Um, And uh, this is a combination of those two things. I hope those two things actually happened together, uh, but I think uh, maybe they didn't, but certainly that's my memory um, of the two things happening together. I remember Dad was running a local fate in in i think it was old harlow and he managed to convince the doctor's partner oh my god it was hartnell's partner what was her name she was very cute she was very sweet and i had a little bit of a crush on her and i was and i was uh um you know i was i don't know how old oh i would have been about i don't know 11 or something and and uh we were running the fade, I was we picked her up from the train station, and I was completely quiet and sort of red-faced and embarrassed and then we went to the fade, and Dad said, "Take <coughs> this guitar and you can go around and be a minstrel." Um, well, the only piece of music I knew how to play was leonard cohen's um Suzanne takes you down. Really miserable piece of music. Yeah, I bet but, that went down
0: really well.
3: <laughs> well, so I was going around the uh, the fete, the carnival, and she was signing autographs, and I was too nervous to say hello, and I was uh, playing Leonard Cohen in the Troubadours. <laughs> and when I went to see the um, show being recorded, and um, Rex Tucker, who was the director came down and said hello and and, uh, they were very nice it was my birthday it was a big treat and they put me in a chair just behind it was was the gunfighters just behind the uh, um, bar room set and i was sitting beside a camera Um, and they'd given me um, a set of headphones and a monitor to look at and Basically, the camera would slide back the mirror behind the bar and poke its lens through every time they wanted to get a reverse shot. And I just sat there and I was listening to the director up in the gallery calling the shots. And it really was like a dream come true because there were two heroes, both my father and the doctor, and I was there on that day and I think in many ways, you know, that was the day when I kind of fell in love with the idea of making movies. Um, and so I suppose that's my fondest memory.
0: So, Matthew, thank you for that. But I've got one more question for you. If Santa Claus were to turn up on Christmas morning at your house with the opportunity for you to write another episode of Doctor Who, and you could use either the daleks or the cybermen which of those two enemies would you like to see your doctor battle against I
3: you can only choose one i can only choose one mm. can i have them both together you know like predator
0: oh no you
3: do it. that's not how this works <laughs> Well, you know, okay. Um, I think I'd probably choose choose the dialects, but I'd want to do something with them. I think that's that's my um that's my probably my problem is is I want to mess with the law of uh, Doctor Who.
0: Yeah, but why not? That's what it's there for. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Any good writer would want to, uh, you know, bring his own thing to the table, wouldn't he?
3: Yeah, well, there's something of a sort of, a, um, you know, a religious um, fervour about Doctor Who that grew up, I think, really blossomed when he wasn't on the screen in the same way at the risk of being um, irreverent or heretical or whatever, in the same way as when, you know, the minute Christ got killed and then was resurrected and then went away again, Suddenly, we end up having churches and we have all sorts of mm. things. So it's almost it's almost that, and I think that and I think that was almost kind of a shame um, because it took away the anarchy that was there in the original in the original series.
0: Matthew, thank you so much for that.
4: Hi, I'm David J. Howe, and I run Telos Publishing.
0: Excellent. And David, would you like to tell uh, the listeners what your special Doctor Who moment is?
4: Well, the moment I've chosen out of a great many that I have is when Telos Publishing got the license from the BBC to publish an original range of Doctor Who novellas. This happened back in 1999, I think it was, or it might have been 2000. Um, I'm, my memory's a little bit shaky on the details. We'd been publishing, um, or I'd been publishing, Doctor Who-related material for a great many years. I did a fanzine. My first fanzine was called um, <laughs> The Service and Doctor Who Appreciation Society Local Group Magazine. It had a really snappy title. Um, and that was way back in 1977 that that first started to be published. I then did um, another fanzine called Oracle. And then with um, Stephen James Walker and Mark Stammers, we went on to do The Frame. Mm. Magazine, which got a lot of good feedback, um, and from the frame, we then ended up um, writing the, the books for Virgin, so the Handbook series and the Decade series and so on and so forth. So i would kind of been involved in writing and publishing and all sorts of stuff for a great many years. Um, I'd, I'd also built been... up
0: a brilliant reputation, as well. I might add.
4: Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Bless you. Bless you. Um, I'd also been involved in publishing with the British Fantasy Society, um, so I'd done a few books with them. Um, So I was kind of pretty well up on printing and publishing and all these kinds of things. And it all kind of, the novellas for for Doctor Who, for Telos, all came about um, almost in a a single leap. It it was quite an incredible year, really. Um, I started discussing with a friend in America, Arnold T. Blumberg, um, about doing a Doctor Who merchandise guide. And the first version of that, the, uh, the Howe's Transcendental Toy Box book came about in, um, I think it was about 2000 or 2001 or something, um, because it was so much work involved in putting it together. And uh, at that time, I'd, for no reason whatsoever, bought a domain name, um, telos.co.uk. It was at that time when, um, domain names were all the rage, yeah, and you know, you had to kind of get your own name.
0: Oh yeah, as, yeah.
4: As, as a domain name, I don't know if you remember the sort of the the, the great domain name gold rush of yeah. 1999, when suddenly everybody could have their own domain name. So I went out and I bought House Who, which I still have, which is where my blog and all my information is. Um, and then I was just looking around for another domain um, because I, I thought well, that that's kind of cool. This, you know, <laughs> it's kind of fun. So so I looked up, you know, Doctor Who and Dalek and Scarrow and Gallifrey and Time Lord and all sorts of things, and they'd all gone. They'd all been taken. And then when I got to Telos, it was available, um, and I was sort of quite incredulous at this. So I, I bought it because um, I thought it's only five letters long; it's quite easy to remember. It might be mm. handy. So I, I bought telos.co.uk. And then when we did the book with Arnold, um, we decided to just use that as the promotional tool for the book. So I had a domain name that I could point a web page at, and so we could promote the book through the domain name. So we put the word Telos on the spine of the first edition of that um, toy box book. So it wasn't really a Telos book. And then what happened was that I was doing another book with the British Fantasy Society as it happened, which was a collection of short stories inspired by the horror Channel 5 television series Urban Gothic, um, which, was, uh, which was on back then, which I absolutely loved. So we got the rights from the production company to do this tie-in book. Um, and so that was kind of going forward. And at the same sort of time, um, we'd seen that um, a friend of mine from the, the BFS, um, a guy called Pete Crowther, had set up a publishing house called PS Publishing um, that was doing some good work in publishing novellas by various horror and fantasy authors. And I thought to myself, well, we could do some Doctor Who ones with those. That's a good idea. You know, the novella's quite a nice format. It's, it's anything between you know, 20 and 40,000 words. It's quite short. You can tell a good story in that sort of length.
0: It's kind of a um, Terrence Dicks kind of a length. Like, and it's
4: exactly, it's the kind of the Terrence Dicks target novel kind of length as well. So I thought we could probably do something with this. So I, I put together a business proposal and we went to the BBC, this is myself and Steve Walker, because mm. I, I i i like working with Steve. He's hes very, very um, good at all sorts of different things and we get on really, really well and still do. Um, so I like working with Steve. So um, we put together this, this business proposal and we went to the BBC with it and said, "Could we do some novellas, please?" Um, much to our amazement, they said, "Yes, we'll, we'll license you to do that." And when we picked ourselves up off the ground, <laughs> um, they, they then said, "But we won't license you. Um, we'll only license a limited company. You have to be a limited company um, right. to be able to do this." So we kind of went away and um, looked at it all and said, "Well, let's set up, you know, a publishing company. Then we'll, we'll set up, a, we'll, buy, we'll buy a company, kind of thing, as you do." Mm. Um, And what should we call it? And I was like, well, I've got a domain name called Telos. Why don't we call it Telos Publishing? Um, So that's what we did. We we set up Telos Publishing, um, relatively easy to do. Steve and I kind of became the directors and away we went. So we had the license to do these Doctor Who novellas. And then there was the question of, well, well, how are we going to do this? Um, And basically, we, we had an enormous amount of fun. Um, Going out, you know, emailing, writing to, talking to all the contacts that I had um, from the kind of the horror writing sphere, because I'd I'd been doing the um, book review column in Starburst for many, many years, Mm. Um, a magazine that you know well, JR, (laughs) Um, (laughs) in its current incarnation. So, as I said, I I was doing the book review column for Starburst uh, and indeed for Shivers, which was the horror magazine that uh, Visual Imagination did. Mm. And um, through that, I'd I'd obviously got an awful lot of contact with publishers, with authors. I I knew an awful lot of people, um, and indeed still do. Um, So we called on all of those, um, which is how we managed to get Kim Newman to do the first one, Time and Relative, which we were absolutely absolutely over the moon about, it was such a good story. And at that time, the first time that anything I think had ever been set in print before the TV series, Um, it hadn't
0: been. The BBC were okay with that then.
4: The BBC were were okay with most of the things that we were doing. Um, As the novellas went on, it became increasingly challenging um, dealing with the BBC. Um, They were they were quite specific and quite picky. Um, I guess, in retrospect, that was their job because it's their license. But when you're trying to do something that's creative and you're trying to kind of push the envelope a little bit, all of which we had said in our proposal, to then find ourselves blocked at almost every turn was somewhat frustrating.
2: Um,
4: uh, It it did become increasingly difficult. Um, I remember there were questions about, I think the second one, Citadel of Dreams, Um, In the original version, Dave Stone had got something where the the doctor, I think, introduces a drug or something into the water system from memory. Um, And the BBC weren't very happy about the doctor drugging people. Um, And so I think that either had to be amended or we had to kind of, you know, finesse our ways around it somehow. Um, But yeah, we had a great lot of fun working with an awful lot of really lovely authors in pulling together this range of books.
0: And you've got Um, to do original Doctor Who fiction, which not many people get to do.
4: Absolutely, and it it still gives me immense pleasure that that series, I think we did 13 books in total or something, um, that that series of books is still cited by some people as the absolute best range of Doctor Who fiction that there has ever been in terms of of consistent quality.
0: Um, And as for pushing the envelope, I'm always... I'm never averse to a little bit of that.
4: No, absolutely. And at the time, the way we pitched the series was that, yes, this was going to be Doctor Who, um, but I remember lots of discussions with Kim Newman and um, the other authors that we used, Simon Clarke um, and Paul McCauley, that, you know, if if I wanted generic Doctor Who fiction, I, I could commission Terence Dix to write all of it, and it would all be brilliant, mm. because is extremely good at writing, you know, Doctor Who fiction, he's he's, he's brilliant at it. Um, But we didn't want generic Doctor Who fiction. What we wanted was a Kim Newman novel that happened to be Doctor Who, and we wanted a Paul McCauley novel that happened to be Doctor Who. So first and foremost, we, we wanted those authors to write things that were the things that they wanted to write, and to bring their own... Kind of essence to it. So we had a lot of fun, um, as I say, working with the various authors, um, getting them to use their styles and to bring their ideas and approaches um, into Doctor Who. We we saw it as giving them a chance to play in the toy box, if you like, but using their own style and their own way of working. Um, And I think, for the most part, it absolutely worked. And and hopefully, everyone who worked with us on the novellas had um, a great time. You know, felt kind of happy at the end result. Um, As I say, working with the BBC was challenging. Um, It it became increasingly um, difficult um, working with them. Um, And at the end of the day, uh, they declined to renew the licence, which Mm. was a bit of a blow for us because the sales were good. We were doing well. We didn't think there was particularly a problem. um, But for whatever their own reasons were, and they never really gave us any coherent reason (laughs) as to why um, that they declined to renew the licence, which was a bit of a shame, really. And so we had to stop. Almost, maybe, almost as soon as we got going, we had yeah.
0: to stop. yes, it was very short-lived. Maybe they saw the new series potentially on the horizon and decided to, uh, you know, keep everything in-house from that point. To so it. I,
4: I, the new season wasn't really around then. No,
0: but it, it must have been looming in their thoughts. Maybe but I don't know
4: about it. I, d- I don't think it. W- I don't think it had been formulated no. to an extent that people actually knew about it, uh, <laughs> either in the BBC or outside. So. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably a bit of politics. Yeah. A bit of, I don't don't know, I don't know. It's it's difficult to speculate, but um, unfortunately we we didn't seem to have the kind of friends in the BBC that other um, licensees had, uh, which kind of kept them protected when others kind of were allowed to go, if you see what I mean. Right, yes. So um, it was a bit difficult. But, no, I'm very proud of the books, and it's certainly a great Doctor Who moment for me. Um, so to know that, you know, we put those out there, that people still love them, um, you know, they still appreciate them. Um, and as I say, um, although obviously there's a lot of other ranges of Doctor Who fiction out there, um, but the, the general perceived opinion is that they can be a bit variable in quality.
0: Yeah,
4: it, It's a bit difficult, you know, when you're putting out something every month. So to oh, maintain a yeah, yeah. level of quality month in, month in, month out. Yeah, I'm sure you see this yourself um, from, you know, the reviews that you do and the things that you see and read and listen to and so on and Mm. so forth Um, but as I say for the novellas people generally say that the quality was consistently high um, and it's the only range of Doctor Who licensed merchandise that's ever managed that so I'm quite proud of that
0: (laughs) (laughs) right David one more thing before you go right a hypothetical Santa Claus question okay Uh, if oh I'm not sure quite how to phrase this if being a publisher, any Doctor Who personality, alive or dead, who hasn't thus far done one, were to come to you with their autobiography, whose would you most like to publish? Hypothetically, oh. of course.
4: Oh, my word, hypothetically. Um, well, there's quite a few, really, aren't there? Uh, yes. I mean, R- R- Roger Delgado springs to life immediately. mm um, I mean, he had a fascinating career, fascinating man, um, amazing background. You know, Do- Doctor Who was obviously kind of at the tail end of his his career, um, but I-, I think he would be very interesting to uh, sort of to talk to and try and put something together. Yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm sure Sylvester McCoy would be would be a great person to get um, a, a, an autobiography from because again, he's he's lived a lot, he's done a lot, he knows a lot so i'm sure there's a lot that he could say um out there um, i mean quite obviously it would be, it would be lovely to have proper autobiographies from all the doctors yes you know um i mean we've we've kind of got john pertwee in in as much as he he wrote the book um yeah. moon boots which covered like the first part of his career and then i did the kind of the doctor who part almost with him so we kind of got john pertwee tom did one um Peter Davison hasn't yet. Well none of the others have, have they? Oh, no, no. Hasn't, Colin hasn't, Sylvester hasn't.
0: Of course Pat Troughton's son did and, his. And, and
4: um, um, so it's Hartle and Troughton we're kind yeah. of the thing, and then and then all all of the <laughs> the subsequent doctors after Tom. So I so think maybe that,
0: you should start chasing them up.
4: Well, possibly. I <laughs> I, I Colin and Sylvester have been asked and Peter indeed have been asked many times and they're just not interested. Um I guess that the, the way they look at it is that an autobiography is something you do when you're not busy. Uh, and yeah. they're, they're always busy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the trouble, isn't it?
4: So, uh, I can understand that. Um, but, yeah, that's an interesting question. So, I, I, I think there's probably a, a few out there um, which are kind of interesting.
0: So, yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, thank you, David, for uh, doing this. That's been great.
4: All right, and happy Christmas. Um, to you and all your podcast listeners.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Hi, this is Mark, and I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
5: Hello, I'm Tom Spilsbury, I'm the editor of Doctor Who magazine.
1: And would
0: you like to tell our listeners what your special Doctor Who moment is, please, Tom?
5: I mean, I remember being very, very um, excited when I first went to Longleat, which is not connected to the TV show, uh, but... But um <laughs> that that was uh something because of course that was um I'm guessing must have been around about when I was four or five years old. Um so I I'd seen Doctor Who by then, I'd seen um the Tom Baker episode Peter Davidson was probably the doctor by then, but it must have been round about that time when Peter Davidson took over. Um and if you remember at Longleat, they had the um the police box entrance which was uh quite a um clever way they sort of done that. i mean it's obvious to an adult how that's done but it was quite it was quite good for um a, a young child to sort of step into that and, and it genuinely did seem bigger on the inside but of course they had the sort of the ticket booth there where you would get the uh the you know pay your entrance fee um and i think pretty much the first thing you used to see um after that there was a Dalek pretty much you know just just yeah. right at the front and um you know of course you know suddenly You know, however tall I was at that point, Um, (laughs) pretty pretty short, I guess. (laughs) I'm looking up at this Dalek there. Um, I mean, you know, scared the scared the life out of me because I never thought I'd sort of come face to face with one quite like that. And and I think it was it was sort of shouting things out as Daleks do. Um, And it was it was a you know saying how how. Smokers would be exterminated. Smoking not permitted in the exhibition, and so on. Um, again, all very witty if you're if you're an adult, but as a child, I just saw, saw this creature in front of me, um, bellowing out its its threats, and I just runs ran straight back out of the out of the exhibition because it was so <laughs> terrified me. Um, and of course, my dad had paid for the tickets and so on, and he was sort of trying to get me to go back in and saying, look, it's okay, it's behind glass, it won't be able to do anything. <laughs> I thought I. I was saying to him, you know, well, it's got a, it's got this gun. It's going to shoot through the glass. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, an idiot. I can, I can, I know how this works. Um, I mean, he did, of course, um, manage to get me to, to, to go inside and I loved it. And, and, um, uh, I said some of the other things in there weren't, weren't sort of so terrifying in the same way. I think it was because the Dalek was actually yeah. talking and I was there for. Um, real, whereas some of the other monsters inside were sort of, you know, a bit more static and um, and not quite so mm. uh, sort of interactive in that way. How old were you then? But, well, I think I was, uh, I'm guessing I must have been about four or five years old. Right. Um, because in later later years, this is before um, the, the 20th anniversary, certainly, because, of, because I, when I went to the 20th anniversary um, celebration at Longleat, um, I was a bit of a veteran by then. I'd certainly been a couple of times before at least you know and well, that stage was about seven um so so this was this would have been my very first time i had been to longlead um and of course you know there are there loads of other great things to do there and we you know we were there as a family day out and um, and uh seeing the safari park and and, and yeah. the house and so on um but you know obviously the doctor who exhibition was the thing which absolutely made the day for me and i loved it you know and there was the little shop and i got some postcards and a badge i think and uh you know, um, I, I think. I mean, obviously, all of these things kind of add up, don't they? Because I, I used to buy the magazine then. Or I bought, bought it. My dad bought it, of course, um, and uh, and I read it with him. But um, you know, and, and of course, the, the program was, was on as well. But I mean, all of these things sort of add up to absolutely turning you into a proper, full-on fan. I think so. So that really sticks in my mind as a as a as, as a moment. You know. Um, very special and as i say going back then it must have been two or three years later for the for the big celebration of the 20th anniversary it was a, a, a astonishing because it wasn't just the exhibition it was the it was the full uh everything wasn't it all the guests yeah. and, and uh, the the makeup tents and and uh, uh, everything that was happening there was was incredible so um so i remember it used to be sort of a it became at least a sort of you know, annual ritual to go to Longleat and see the exhibition because they'd always um add in new props from the most recent series so they'd always change it around a little bit Um and so that that was certainly something, you know if we're going to have a sort of summer outing or, or, you know, an Easter holidays outing or whatever Um, you know, it was always, well, can we go to Longleat, you know <laughs> of course we couldn't go to Longleat
0: every time um, but we probably did go once a year You were quite was... reasonably close, I suppose
5: yeah, that's right. Um I mean, I don't, don't know if you really have a sort of appreciation of this kind of thing when you're a child because you get in a car and it feels like you're driving for, for months anyway. You know, are we nearly there? Yes, and all of that. And of course, um, you know, when we used to go on summer holidays, we used to go to sort of down to Devon or, or um, other, other places, which would be, you know, a good good hour or two's drive, I suppose. Um but um you know, it was a good, it was a good place to go. I think there was another exhibition up in Blackpool, so, so some of my, um, uh, you know, friends now, I didn't know them at the time, but people like Gary Gillette who lived in Blackpool and, and others who lived up there, they they were, we used to go to the Blackpool exhibition and that was their, uh, um, equivalent. But, um, but yeah, Longleat was the, uh, was, was the thing for me, um, and I loved it, um, and, and it was very sad when it, of course, it finally, I think it finally closed, um, pretty much as they were announcing the series is coming back in about two
0: years. I know, yeah. Um, And they had
5: that fire a few years before that. Um, Yeah, shame, really, because, um, you know, for a long time, it was very much ahead of its time, really, the idea of having an exhibition about um, sort of a a TV show like that. Um, It was, uh, you know, now we sort of take that for granted, you know, the Doctor Who Experience and all of this, you know, far more... Sort of interactive stuff, impressive things, but you know, and I think probably if you were to compare what we have now to the Longleat exhibition, which was a few sort of props, you know, stuck up against a the wall there, you know, I'm sure it was pretty basic, really. But, um, but you know, it was it was to me, through a child's eyes, was you know, it, it was being able to see those things I've seen on the television, and absolutely believe they were real, and um, going into the TARDIS, and the even then, I probably knew the TARDIS console wasn't quite right. <laughs> um, it, was, it was it was a slightly different version, wasn't it? It was a kind of you know, a, what, what the, the, it was like someone had built it, kind of having seen a photo and not got it quite right. Like, and I remember they had the, the pictures of all the doctors sort of round the um, uh, round the uh, control room um, uh, as, as well. I think for many years they had Richard Herndl there instead of William Hartnell, which was a bit a bit um, weird. <laughs> yeah, but it's they, like oh, well, that's the first offer and put him in. That was a shame. <laughs> um, but, um yeah. Anyway, those are that, that's a memory. I don't know. I can I can think of other memories. If,
0: uh... Oh no, no no, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, one more question though before we finish. <laughs> a bit of a googly question that I'm asking everybody. As okay. um, soon as this is for our Christmas episode. So here you go. If Santa Claus could bring you a character options toy of any character or monster that hasn't been produced yet, which one would you like it to be? Wow, well, well, I'm
5: not encyclopedic about which ones they have put out, because they've some pretty skill ones, haven't they? Um, I mean, I, I think, well, I, I pop into Forbidden Planet sometimes and think, oh, my God, you can get, like, a City of Death set and, you know, <laughs> yeah. brilliant, brilliant things, um, you know, and a, a Morbius monster and all sorts of stuff. So, so you know, the... the most of them must have must have been put out already, surely.
0: Well, uh, quite a few, but awesome. I mean, it's bizarre the way they've sort of picked and chosen. There's a lot of Hinchcliffe yeah. ones, but barely anything from before Pertwee or after Tom Baker. Right, yeah. Is there anything though that you'd particularly like to have as a toy that may or not may well, or may not be?
5: Of course, the thing was, if if I if if I'd had them when I was a child, mm. um, there would have been various things. Yeah, I mean, I. I'd love to have had the figures that they have now with as, as a child because it just didn't exist. Even the Daypole figures weren't really around when I was really young because they came a bit later. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I had a talking K9 as a kid, but I'm sure there's a K9 that they have that's a that would have been, uh, you know, what I absolutely wanted. Um, what, what haven't they put out now? You know, I sort of think something from when I, you know, from my formative.
0: Uh, but, you know, years as a as a child, really. But um, well, what was your first sort of season then, perhaps? Well,
5: sort of late like Tom, really, sort of um, Death of the Dalek, City of Death.
0: Well, there you go. What about a mandrel yeah. or a Nymon? Yeah. Has there been
5: a mandrel? I love the mandrel. Not yet, no. Yeah, we'll have a mandrel then. Or oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I'll have to get in touch with character options then and see if I can't organise it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably no, I shouldn't well think no
5: that. I mean they, they they were i mean it's funny, I think that that season is sometimes sort of put down a bit, you know it's not being one of the greats, but it was the first one I remember watching, and it's got it does have good monsters, in it, it actually got a lot more monsters in it than the Ke time season, usually before, um you know, I so I loved that obviously the Daleks were in it, but um you know, Scaroff I thought was great and very scary, and the mandrain that I'm on um, I didn't really have that many memories of Hirato from the creature from the pit. Some reason that didn't really kind of sink in in the same way, but but the mandrels and the I'm on did. Um, yeah, so so those those would have been really good sort of early early memory. Yeah, I'd, I'd have a toy mandrel. I think that's, that's actually yeah probably quite genuine. If they put out a toy mandrel, I quite like to have one of those on my desk. <laughs>
0: The next voice you'll hear will be that of Phil Morris, Doctor Who missing episode hunter extraordinaire, who I met and interviewed at the XL Doctor Who celebration event in London in November. And in the course of editing the interview, you have to lose a certain amount of stuff, and that stuff was, well, you're about to hear for yourself. But you'd obviously grown up with Doctor Who as a child. Oh, of course, of course. And other programmes as
6: well. I think think the main focal point for me growing up, it was Doctor Who. Yes. I was very... um, I was always fascinated by it, by the way that, you know, you'd watch any other drama or... It was not like any other programme on television. And what fascinated me was how it was written, how they did the special effects, how everything was done, because... I know somebody looks back on some of these old shows at the time and thinks, oh, how bad they were, but actually at the time, they were pretty groundbreaking. They were pretty good. I remember watching, uh, you know, The Demons with John Pertwee, and people were complaining that they'd blown up a church. (laughs) And, you know, it was, you know, I remember watching it, and I thought, each series of Doctor Who at the time, I put it like a Beatles record, every Beatles record the next record came out was a step up from the next one down and Doctor Who seemed to be on that trail it seemed to be getting better as technology improved the series got better it was flexing its muscles it was escaping from you know whatever it began as it was it was starting to grow and it fascinated me it was absolutely a fascinating program and still captivates me now you know its very idea and at the core of its idea are very clever scripts it's all about storytelling and that for me is what stands the test of time
2: absolutely
6: stands the test of time all with Doctor Who of course the actors have been there all character actors all been in the stage and the screen and you can tell when they deliver a line they're used to doing it from a stage And when you deliver a live from a stage, it's from the back. You're talking to the back of the auditorium. And when you get those kind of actors on television, they know how to make themselves the centre of attention. And the centre of attention is what the character of Doctor Who really is.
0: So, how did you find out about the missing
6: episodes? The episodes were there. Was it that Doctor Who magazine winter special? Uh, I think it was. You know, I think I think it was that. My mum used to have said this before. My mum used to buy me, and you know, God bless her. Now she passed away a couple of years ago. She she used to buy me the Target books, which was something like 15 pence at the time. I used to get 25 pence pocket money, so they were expensive for me at the time. You know, inflation's gone up a bit since then. Uh, And I used to really enjoy them, and I thought one day, I never knew there were any other doctors. I grew up with John Pertwee, and when he changed to Tom Baker, I thought it was a disaster. But then, after a couple of episodes into Tom, Tom's like a fungus. He just grows all over you. And and there there is is no ignoring his Doctor Who. Because if there was a definitive portrayal, it would probably be Tom's. People would always say, why is that? And, and I've looked at it and i thought, because he embodies what Hartnell did, he embodies what Troughton did, takes what Fairley did and he builds on it. So I think Verity Lambert also made, made a, a comment on this to say, who, you know, who's most faithful to the concept she laid down in 1963. And of course she mentioned Tom Baker. I think Tom, at his best, with the good script, the right director, it's classic Doctor Who. Absolutely. Although other actors have played the part and they've been equally as good. I think at that point he embodied everything that the others have been and built on it. Yeah, yeah. Which was, you know, a very successful call. Yeah, absolutely, right.
0: Were you, did you fit, we must be roughly the same age
6: I should think. Uh, you given think what so? stories you've just you've more grey hairs than me. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Mine's, mine's probably bleached, but there you go. But my experience of discovering
0: that all these episodes were missing yeah. because at the time we couldn't watch any; there weren't any repeats. There no, was a VHS, but always in the back of my mind was the idea that we one day could, we could I see would them. see them. I, yeah. I was
6: exactly the same. I was exactly the same. I thought one day I'll see these. I remember reading um, it was a, a Target book called Doctor Who and the Cybermen. Yeah. And I read it, I thought, Doctor Who and the Cybermen, and and, 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 and I read it, and then it said inside, just on, I think it was the first or second page, the changing face of Doctor Doctor Who Who depicts whatever actor was playing it, at that time I thought, oh this is interesting, I read it and I realised this was about the first Doctor Who, it was of course the 10th planet, Mm. which I found fascinating absolutely fascinating. I, I thought the concept of the Cybermen in that original form, which is probably quite strongly what I still feel about them you've got a creature that's it's also—it's a human being that's part machine part human and you think to yourself which parts are human and which parts are and that, I think that guess always kind of you think to yourself what that, that's you. what intrigues you. It's terrifying. I'm not so keen on what they do now, where it's, it's, a, it's a, they say to tra- it's a robot. Mm. The side men were never robots. People used to say to me, "Well, it's a man in a suit." I said, "It is a man in a suit." Yeah. Guess which parts of the man and guess which parts of the suit. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, it's always very intrigued by the tenth planet when you know you'd see obviously the actors. You could see the eyes, the human eye, which for a performance of an actor is is, is crucial. And the Movement of the mouth where the movement of the mouth would open and uh, yeah. and then the speech would come that out. That was very spooky. Yeah. I, I think the I think the original concept that Jerry Davis and Kit Pedler came out with I think that concept stands it, it resonates so powerfully today that conceptually it's, it's you know it's it's a classic idea which which I wish I wish someone would really do something with.
7: Hi,
4: this is Simon. Have a Merry Christmas.
8: Hello, I'm uh, John Dorney. I uh, write, act and occasionally script edit for uh, Big Finish in uh, Doctor Who range and occasionally some of the others as well, yes.
0: Oh, excellent. Hello, John. Would you like to tell our listeners what your special Doctor Who moment is?
8: Um, yeah, absolutely. I uh, Obviously, um, I've been sort of a long-standing fan for... Oh, goodness only knows how long it is, about 30 odd years, I think the very first thing I ever saw was uh, the Five Faces repeat of an unearthly child, episode one, so that kind of places how long I've been a fan. That's not a bad um, place to start. <laughs> so it's not a bad place, I, though technically what actually happened was I didn't watch the whole episode, I got scared uh, of the opening titles and didn't watch any more of it until I think it was Carnival of Monsters which was the first one I actually watched in full during that season. Um but yeah i so obviously I've been sort of a long term fan and I kind of but I was very much at the sort of the the, the dog end of the original series in the nicest possible way of putting that uh, when it was uh it was not as popular with the audiences, even though I think that the program itself in that period is, is utterly terrific um I absolutely adore Peter Colin and Sylvester and the work they do in it and um and all of the stories I just think are still brilliant. I love all of them um so I, and, and obviously, when you're sort of a teenager in that kind of period, it's um, it, it's a little bit awkward and eggy that you know you're kind of watching this thing that's now a little bit uncool, and and it was, it was, you know it, 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 I was always ever so slightly sort of roundly mocked for it uh, when when I was a child and 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 as sort of a, a, a young adult, um, so. Then, then it kind of goes away, and it was always—it's always sort of a nominal part of my life to some degree. You know, I, there was, when I went to drama school, uh, I, I got a certain degree of cachet for having the uh, VHS of Robots of Death, uh, because I had my my voice tutor, Greg depolney, um, was was a robot in it, which which got everyone excited. He was D eighty four, which everyone found hilarious. Um, and but it was always sort of there. Um, now I, I think the, the, the special moment. For me, it was uh, it was obviously about sort of two thousand and five, two thousand and six, uh, because uh, after all those years, that's obviously when Doctor Who sort of came back on the TV, and it's not that, it's not even that bit that I thought was, the, was my special name. Uh It was it was sort of when I went back into my local WH Smith's, uh, at the first sort of available opportunity um, after um, after the series had started again. And and the first time I saw kids really, really excited about Doctor Who again and sort of desperately wanted to buy the magazine. And and that sort of sense of of, of, of the kind of thing I'd always heard about, about the sort of the peak of its popularity in the 70s, coming back, that sort of, it, without wanting to seem ridiculously cocky, the kind of the, the sense of going, well, I, I, we were right, really, that this is this is a great show that you just need to market it properly and, and, and spend the money on it and and that it is it was just the the, the joy of seeing it connect with a new generation something that i didn't, you know for eight well, how many years was it 16 years wasn't it uh, i'd not ever expected to happen again that that um that kids would be able to be excited and thrilled by it and and that sort of followed on uh through the rest of my life the the, the uh, ever since that that sort of point um because you know suddenly like my 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 cousins kids are deeply excited and interested in the work I do, and you know, and they're kind of like, you know, round about sort of late, late, um, late first decade into like 10, 11, 12 sort of kind of age. Um, yeah, that is, is that really the fact that, that it's, it's any time pretty much that I see, uh, any, anyone young getting excited about it again, um, because, because that, that never seemed like we were going to have that back, and, um, and we, we, we just managed to have that, yeah.
0: Wow, John, that is a damn nice moment to choose, and you've surprised me a little bit there, in yeah. quite a good way.
8: Yes, I, I'm, well, I'm quite chuffed. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it just, it's just one that kind of struck me when I thought about it, that, um, yeah, that, that it feels quite a bit special again now. So yeah. Excellent.
0: Right, I've got one more question for you before we go, though. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I've been asking everybody a sort of hypothetical Santa Claus question, mm-hmm. so here's one for you. Now, just recently... As we all know, hopefully our listeners will know, you had a fairly central role in the big Finish 50th anniversary audio drama, The Light at the End. I did, yes. You've obviously worked with a number of doctors. Now, Mm -hmm. if Santa Claus, in his sack, could bring you the opportunity to work with any doctor, living or dead, that you haven't been able to work with before, Mm -hmm. which
8: one would you choose? Um, It'd be Patrick Allen. Absolutely. I mean, having said, I feel slightly guilty in not saying William Hartnell, but um, because I, I because I adore William Hartnell as, as well. But uh, you know, Patrick Troughton's been my favourite Doctor pretty much since um, seeing the three Doctors th- that sort of thirty odd years ago. Um, I, I just think he. I mean, I, I I love Hartnell. I think Hartnell's incredibly underrated, and anyone who hasn't done a sort of a solid, sort of sequential look through as much of the the early years as they can. Won't quite get as much a sense of how much he owns that part and how brilliant he is with it, but but ultimately my heart's always going to be Trouton, I think if if, if it, 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 I would feel I feel slightly guilty in ne- neglecting Hartnell, but I I think Trouton is the best actor to to play the part. If in in my absolute heart heart of hearts is an utter joy to watch on the screen, yes, it would be Troughton.
0: Sadly, that's not something I can fix for you, I'm afraid.
8: I I know it's it, yeah it's not going to happen, but um. I, I i'm fortunate enough to get as close as i can with you know having worked with um, with, with you know his companions and um and, and and that sort of that connection but yeah yeah it, 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 a sad loss as, as in fact heartland and 32 both lost. so I've, I've had the joy of working with all the others though which is which is which, which is it's some small consolation because they're all pretty wonderful but blokes as well so
0: oh well excellent thank you john
9: Hi, I'm Phil Ford, I've written for Doctor Who, Um, I've also written for Sarah Jane, I've also written for for Torchwood, and more recently I co-created Business vs. Aliens with Russell T. Davis. Excellent. Actually, that's quite a lot of CV.
0: Uh, (laughs) Would you like to share with our listeners your special
9: Doctor Who moment, Phil? I think the, the one that comes to mind is receiving the Doctor Who annual 1973 for Christmas, nineteen seventy-three, which I can still kind of see now, and with John Pertwee on the cover, um, and yeah, that that would be it. That's the thing that comes to mind. One of those treasured Christmas presents.
0: Well, obviously, you'd been watching the program for a while before that happened, presumably.
9: Yeah, I mean, it's it's curious because um, I I recently had a conversation with my sister because I my, the first memory that I you know that I really have. For, for, Doctor Who is, is John Pertwee in Inferno. And I couldn't remember watching it when Patrick Troughton was in it. But I was talking to my sister who's 10 years older than me, not so long ago. And she remembers me, uh, um, playing in a cardboard box with one of the, with one of the, uh, sucker pipes from the, from the hoopla when I must have been when I would have when I would have been about six. So clearly, I actually was watching it longer than I actually remember. But my memory's not that good.
0: <laughs> oh, you must have been though. Wow! <laughs> if only your memory was better, you'd be able to remember all these stories that are still missing.
9: Oh, absolutely. That's it. That's it. Yeah. But uh, yes. Yeah, so I am that old. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, do you remember any of the stories from the annual? From the annual. the thing that I remember most, I think it's why I remember it, is because annuals in those days were fabulous things because they, yeah, they did have stories in them, and they had original stories, you know, and and there were pro stories, and although I don't remember it in that particular annual, you also had uh, strip cartoons as well, but I do remember in that one, the being a story about the Doctor confronting some alien race that was invading. And the thing I remember most of all about it was that these aliens, whoever they were, I can't remember the name of them, were impressed by um, by uh Dressing up. It should have been typical for the third doctor. And I do remember some mention of the, do- of, of, of in, the, in this story about the doctor with a cane. And I'm thinking, I don't ever remember the doctor actually having a cane. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that nah, he should have done. <laughs> I
0: think maybe the people who were writing it were thinking of William Hartnell, weren't they? <laughs>
9: may well be, but this was John Pertwee, so... But, uh, some of uh, the you...
0: stories in his old annuals were just insane, weren't they?
9: Oh, they were, but, but you know, but the thing, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose in some ways, I suppose they were kind of, the sto- some of the stories were some of the stories that you couldn't tell on television, because you wouldn't have been able to afford to do them. That's the way they should have been, anyway. Um... But, but, yeah, I mean, I love those old annuals that you used to get way back then, because in many ways, they were so much more inventive, sadly, than the ones that you get now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And more inventive, like you say, than, on you know, on a lot of occasions, than the television series itself could be. Well, and sometimes,
9: sometimes it actually took a few liberties from what I can recall.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You <laughs> but, know, though, I think the <laughs> thing about the modern TV series is that actually, every now and again, and I think Stephen Moffat's particularly good at this, it does get sort of madly inventive in the same kind of way as some of those old annual stories did.
9: Goodness, of course it does. But, you know, that's that's the way it's for it. And, you know... And uh, I, Stephen, and Russell, and many of the others were all brought up on those annuals as well, and on the and on the comic strip adventures in in TV Twenty One and stuff like that, you know, and all those things I you know I know full well have have all got a part in our you know our heritage and in in what brought us to be doing this, and there's there's still influences for all of us, I think.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for that, Phil. You're very, very welcome. I have one more question for you.
1: Okay.
0: Right. If Santa. Let me put it this way. As uh, one of the head writers, if not the head writer on Wizards vs. Aliens... Yes. And with Wizards vs. Aliens being set now, unlike the Sarah Jane adventures, in a completely different fictional universe to the Doctor Who universe, if you, if Santa, were to bring you the opportunity to be able to use a villain or monster or some character from the Doctor Who universe in Wizards versus Aliens, <laughs> which one would you use?
9: <laughs> oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good old question. That's a good old <laughs> question. Obviously, I'd love to see our wizards going up against some Cybermen and some Daleks. But actually, the one thing that I think would kind of, in some strange way, be actually feel like a part of that universe as well, would be the Yetis.
0: Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah,
9: yeah, I think that would be really interesting. I think that would be quite fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm.
0: Well, here's the question, though. Would it be the robot Yeti that we had in Doctor Who, or would it be actual real Yeti?
9: I th- I mean, I'd, I'd love to see the robot Yeti actually, you know, because because the whole nature of Wizards versus Aliens is it's magic versus science, and um, the Yeti there's something magical about them. But if those if those Yetis were the robot ones as well, then that kind of mixes it up the way that we would do in Wizards versus Aliens.
0: Oh, that's a nice answer. Thank you for that, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> well, that's it. That's great. Torture over.
9: <laughs> <laughs> wasn't too torturous, it was fine, thank you very much
0: well thank so, you
9: and... you're very welcome, you're very very welcome and have a Merry Christmas you have a fabulous Christmas, thank you Hi, I'm Dan
0: Starkey Dan, could you possibly tell the listeners what your special Doctor Who moment is please?
7: Oh gosh, um, there are quite a few to choose from really, because I've, so, I've obviously I watched the series a lot when I was a kid and obviously I'm in it now um, I suppose so from my current sort of career, uh, my moment would probably be telling that, uh, saying when I actually found out that I was going to be in Doctor Who, that was a fairly amazing moment. I'd been to the audition, sort of like a week before, and I thought I'd done reasonably well, but actually being told, you've got it, you can be in Doctor Who, I sort of, um, yeah, sort of hit the ceiling really. And I was just giggling, giggling like an idiot for about ten minutes afterwards.
0: I'm and, completely uh, I, not
7: surprised. No, absolutely. And then I like, I phoned home, like so phoned, phoned my, phone my mum and dad, and uh, they were very excited. And I, um, yeah, I think at the time, yes, I, I, my, 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 I phoned my flatmate at the time when I got back, who was a very, very old friend of mine, school friend of mine, who I used to swap Doctor Who videos with, and um, he'd also helped me with uh, reading through, um, reading through the, the the lines for the the audition, helped me learn my lines for the scene that I was that I was preparing. So he was. Uh, so he was terribly excited about that. And so uh, when he got back, we had a, had a good old drink and uh, celebrated, which was great. And uh, I suppose the fact that I used to swap Doctor Who videos with him when I was a kid sort of bespeaks sort of my uh, my long relationship with the programme. So I suppose the kind of, um, yeah, the actual magic moment, memory, one of the first things which I remember when I was a child, I must have been about three or four years old, was watching... Um, Tom Baker's turn into Peter Davison in the end of Legopolis, mm. Well, I remember calling it the <laughs> I was about four because I hadn't sort of quite sort of twigged, you know. So I'd, I'd listened that closely with my with my child's ears, but sort of um, yeah, just just watching that for the first time and seeing that transformation was just was just amazing. And I think I think in common with quite a lot of people my age, I think that was that was a very strong image that stuck in my mind for a long time
0: afterwards. Well, I've got to say, Dan, I think I prefer your name for Legopolis to Christopher <laughs> H. Bidmeads. <laughs> <laughs> <The> gobbles, <yeah. laughs> Before we go then, one more question. and uh, yes. This is a sort of hypothetical Santa Claus type question. Right. But if Santa Claus on Christmas morning was to turn up with you, at your house with a yes. script from Stephen Moffat <laughs> in which uh, Strax and the rest of the gang were to appear yeah. in a new story with any classic Doctor Who or any Doctor Who monster of your choice, Who would you like Strax to meet?
7: Oh, gosh, okay. Um, Right, there was... I mean, obviously, it would be interesting having him meet more Sontarans, but um, Mm. seeing, seeing what would happen there. But I think... Actually, because I've played them on Big Finish audios, they're immense fun. I like I like the crawls to come back. Cause, <gasps> yes, because they're ridiculous, because <laughs> they're great. Because I've tried to invade the Earth at least once before, and they didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> and 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 there was just something about them because initially they were kind of like, they were a bit of a the, the, the sort of second division of Doctor Who monsters. Mm. But having to play them, they and the fact that they've got the voice of Zippy, and they all look <laughs> as they've got a really bad headache. <laughs> <laughs> They're on a planet fuse radiation for about a thousand years, and it's like everything's just not going very well. Ah, oh, now we're all trying to invade the earth a second time. Let's hope it goes better this time. Um, that will be <laughs> that be quite. I think I think that would be uh, the Krews in Victorian London. Yeah, well, let, let's make it happen somehow.
0: Uh, I <laughs> do. I tell you what, I am an act, actually a fan of the Krals. I do like <laughs> them. Good. <laughs> and there's a. Um there's one other member of this podcast who does an incredible zippy impersonation. And <laughs> oh my god, it's like having him in the room when you're doing Fantastic. that. It's <laughs> oh, a bit scary. Yes. Well Dan, thank you so much for stopping no by problem. and sharing that. That's brilliant.
7: Quite alright, it's a pleasure.
0: So that was the Blue Box Podcast Christmas special. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Apologies for the sound quality in some places. But, you know, those conversations were taken from all over the place. And I suppose all that it remains for me to do is wish you all a Merry Christmas. And we'll see you after the big day with a review of Matt Smith's final episode. So we'll speak again soon. What was it like seeing Paul McGowan on the telly again? Did you have any inkling that that was going to happen?
3: I had no knowledge whatsoever. It was a surprise. Um, uh, you know, somebody uh, somebody sent it to me the the link to me on Facebook, and I have to say I was uh, I was actually a little moved. You know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> the thing that Moffat had done that that I really liked um, was he had kept the the flippancy of the you know the way in, mm. in that speech where, where she says we have four minutes and he goes four minutes that's masses of time you know get out of the knitting um, <laughs> or whatever, he says that, that that I felt was very much the eighth doctor um and uh you know, very much those things of talking through doors and the moment, I'm the nice doctor, and and coming back with reverse lines. Uh, he managed to capture that. I think he had a real challenge because there was so much exposition he was trying to cover. Um, and, uh, and that's always a problem, I suppose, with Doctor Who, but in, in the thing of a six minute film you know with yeah. you get something to get that line where we have four minutes left um uh, in which a lot of, a lot of stuff had to be explained um and i think that's you know that, and he did it very very well